uh, welcome to session 121 of the weekly huddle uh, i am dr pranit i am a cardiologist working at kims hospital secunderabad i am joined by my colleague and co-host dr anup agarwal uh, who works with me at kims hospital we've been hosting this weekly huddle session for quite some time and most of you are familiar with the pattern of the program we discuss a clinical topic and try to know the science behind it uh we try to reframe our uh, uh, way we are uh, conducting sessions uh, as per the review uh, as per the so called survey specialty topics need to be discussed was what the need of the hour so we thought of discussing a specialty topics uh, today is one of those specialty to- topic uh, probably a cardiology a heavy topic i should say we are talking about aortic stenosis about decision making about valve replacement and what is the uh, who is the ideal candidate for valve replacement be it surgical or percutaneous we'll try to make this discussion on a case based uh, so i'll try to elaborate a case and we'll try to discuss uh, with this uh, case into picture uh, i can see uh, somraju sir and amir who i can identify as cardiologists and anup is there anyway and others uh, i cannot uh, recognize so i'll try to take comments from anup who is a proctor uh, himself for uh, tavar so i think i'll take his opinion and equally if anybody has any questions or uh, any uh, doubts in between can interfere and uh, please get it clarified <clears throat> so we'll get started so this case who we saw recently this patient is a 64 male who got recently admitted for uh, heart failure it's a decompensated heart failure where the patient was uh, stabilized and as a routine for any patient who has heart failure hospitalization you try to look at why did the patient have a heart failure and you try to look at any correctable causes on evaluation of this patient the patient was found to be having a severe valvular aortic stenosis with a p gradient of 84 and a mean gradient of 48 a valve area of 0.8 uh echo showed moderate lv systolic dysfunction and there was also a moderate mitral regurgitation <clears throat> there was an enlarged left atrium the right ventricular function was okay there was a mild pulmonary hypertension with an rv systolic pressure of 55 mm ECG showed sinus rhythm, some left ventricular hypertrophy. There was poor airway progression in anterior precordial leads. When we go back to his past history, uh, he's hypertensive, diabetic for more than ten years, and he had an antral MI about five years back, for which he underwent thrombolysis. Later, he underwent an elective angiogram followed by angioplasty to his proximal LAD. The last details that we know. his ejection fraction was about 50% and uh, <clears throat> this report we had it about 2 years back he was recently diagnosed to be also having chronic kidney disease with a baseline creatinine of 1.9 he is non oliguric and uh, he is otherwise okay and uh, he also follows up with his physician nephrologist who is continuing conservative management <clears throat> now this patient who got admitted for heart failure hospitalization after initial stabilization because of uh, severe aortic stenosis he was evaluated for 
aortic valve replacement as a part of evaluation because of his previous history of coronary artery disease a coronary angiogram was done to uh, assess the coronary artery disease a diagnostic coronary angiogram was done which showed <clears throat> that the stent in LAD which was placed 5 years back is patent there is a lesion in left circumflex in the proximal segment with about 80% stenosis with TB3 flow good flow right coronary artery was normal now this gentleman who just recently got, got retired is a cghs employee non vegetarian lives in the outskirts of hyderabad with his family uh, with his uh, son and grandchildren and he is reasonably physically active who does his daily chores does his daily uh, activity and he wants to lead an independent <clears throat> life now for this patient uh, who is reasonably okay physically well built whose frailty index is 0 out of 4 who had a heart failure hospitalization because of severe aortic stenosis with moderate lv dysfunction how do we uh, manage this patient uh, what is the uh, i think the decision of doing aortic valve replacement is clear there is no confusion in that but how do we replace this valve today we know that there is uh, two options which is the gold standard surgical aortic valve replacement and the new kid in the block which is the transcatheter aortic valve replacement now how do we select which one should be offered and what are the pros and cons of each therapy understanding um, everything from surgical risk to cost to practical aspects of it uh, the data that we have is heavily dependent on the literature that we get from uh, european and uh, american uh, patients how does it how can we translate that data into indian patients um where um, uh, and make it more practical and how does a physician who is seeing uh, can make a decision or refer to a cardiologist so these will be the uh, essence of uh, discussion today so uh, i will probably start with uh, sarik whom i can see as a cardiologist uh, sarik uh, if i if you can unmute yourself uh thank you for joining and i can i get your your um, input on if this patient i i don't know whether you could completely hear this story if you think there is any questions that i can say i can uh, uh, give you inputs and uh, you can understand the case better and give your inputs can i get your comments adik uh yes yeah, thank you uh, so i just i just joined so i understand yeah. that this is a a patient with uh, moderate lv dysfunction <coughs> was already had a anterior mi that was tainted and now he has got moderate mr with uh, severe aortic stenosis and uh, moderate lv with uh, moderate ph uh, am, am i right yes yeah uh, so yeah i think uh, because i mean this frailty index is 0 by 4 uh, and he has got lch lesion of 80% with moderate mr uh, probably we need to you know understand the cause of the mitral regurgitation in this patient uh, first before uh, we proceed further uh, because i think fixing the mitral valve is not going to solve the problem here uh, maybe we revascularize the uh, reassess the mr uh, then deal with the aortic valve i i feel the mr could just settle once the lvot obstruction is taken care of okay uh, yeah uh, any anything else uh, you would like to add sir 
yeah, I think LC exclusion probably, yeah, we should revascularize that. And uh, yes, I, I don't think I would go for surgical uh, AVR in this patient because uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, nothing as of now. Okay, so if if I understand you correctly, then uh, you would opt for transcatheter valve replacement, probably do yes. a coronary artery disease intervention, and uh, yes. for mitral valve replay for mitral valve regurgitation, uh, you would probably reassess after you are yes uh, inter do intervening uh, both coronary artery disease and valvular stenosis, and you expect yes uh, the valve regurgitation to come down post. Intervention post addressing mm -hmm. valve stenosis yes. and uh, coronary artery disease. Yes, right. yes, uh, yeah, uh, I feel it will come down. Okay, uh, th thank you for those uh, uh, comments, uh, Sadiq. Now, oh, with yeah, this um, opening remarks, I would uh, probably try to understand uh, from Anup. Uh, Anup, can you help us uh, understand uh, decode these things? I have. Kind of, I'll try to break down for the sake of uh, clarity or this is what equally I have in mind when I look at a patient, like how can we make a decision of uh, uh, offering uh, valve replacement option, surgical versus transcatheter valve replacement. If we go back in time, uh, transcatheter valve replacement, when it was introduced, it was uh, indicated for only extremely uh, high-risk patients and then followed by high-risk and um, intermediate and low risk. And these risk calculation was based on the uh, surgical risk based on the STS risk score. And that is where it is. And uh, currently, as per the recommendations or guidelines, and now TAVR is open for everybody. It is for all comers and it is there. Uh, Anup, can you help us understand uh, what is this STS risk scoring? How much is it reliable? And do we need to calculate to everybody? And how much can it um, uh, how much can it help us in making a decision? Can we solely rely on it? Do we need to calculate it? Uh, or how is it relevant in Indian patients? Right, Pranit. So uh, I think in this patient, one, one part is very clear is this guy needs aortic valve replacement. When to do, how to do that, we can discuss about it. So as you all are quite familiar, the evolution of TAVR in the last uh, 12 years or so, because the trials were done in uh, a certain surgical risk profile, it basically forced us to think about uh, a surgical risk score or surgical anticipated surgical risk before uh, we consider whether the patient should be offered TAVR or not. And the idea here was we do need to offer a therapy which is perceivably having a lower risk than Surgical AVR, that's the whole idea behind because surgical AVR was the gold standard. So if surgical AVR can be done at a much lower risk, then why do we necessarily offer TAVR? One gold standard therapy is already established. Just because it's a minimal invasive, that doesn't mean it needs to be offered to everybody. So we were in our clinical decision-making, we were forced to think about STS risk score or Euro score. Why those scores? Because those were the only available validated scores at that time which had got certain predictive value of what a 30-day mortality would be if this patient has to undergo a surgical aortic valve replacement. So that is how the STS risk score or the Euro score became a part and parcel. In fact, cardiologists started using this score more than the surgeons uh, about 10 years ago. 
Uh, subsequently, as TAVR evolved and as we started incorporating uh, this therapy in more and more lower risk subset, intermediate risk, and then low risk subset, what we started realizing is that TAVR is performing equally, if not better, than surgery in terms of perioperative outcome. So long-term outcome that we can discuss about, but perioperative outcome, which earlier, about 10-12 10, 12 years ago, we were not quite clear how TAVR will, uh, will uh, phase out. But now we know that TAVR perioperatively does very good, does as good if not better than surgery. So then it got incorporated into low surgical risk patient. The only problem was that we still did not know the long-term effect of TAVR. We understood the short-term effect of TAVR. We didn't understand the long-term effect of TAVR. So in the current era, now we are going away from the STS risk score uh, categories, which would define whether patient should be offered TAVR or, or SAVR. Now we are going more towards patient longevity. And the idea here is because it's a bioprosthetic valve, you expect this valve to degenerate, whether it will degenerate in 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, we don't know that, but we expect this valve to degenerate. So if you have a patient, and if you think the valve is going to outlast the expected longevity of the patient himself, then STS risk score doesn't really matter. You are going to give the person a therapy, and that therapy is most likely going to be definitive therapy for this person's rest of the life. On the other hand, if you have a patient where you think that it is, it can be expected for that particular patient to outlive the bioprosthetic valve, then there comes the discussion whether this patient should get TAVR or whether this patient should get a surgical valve, understanding that surgical valve will also be a bioprosthetic valve at that particular age point. But at least that surgical aortic valve has a much better legacy. And so we know we are actually offering them a therapy which, is, uh, uh, which has been uh, tested over time as compared to TAVR. And we know that TAVR can be done once uh, the bioprosthetic valve fails. So in the current era, STS risk score is less relevant in our clinical decision-making. What is more relevant is, can we, can we get a reasonable estimate of patient's life expectancy and then make a decision accordingly? One question you asked about the limitations of STS score, because we are not doing STS scoring these days, we are not talking about the limitations that much, but it is important to know because those uh, uh, limitations of STS score, if present in a patient, would put that patient at a high risk for surgery. And there, even with a low STS risk score, you would uh, favor doing a transcatheter therapy in those patients as compared to surgical. Um, and those uh, entities which are not, in, not included in STS risk score, one thing you mentioned about frailty, but porcelain aorta, we have heard stories where a patient's chest was open and then was closed even without uh, bypass surgery or without aortic valve replacement because surgeon identified there is a porcelain aorta or those patients who had uh, multiple thoracotomies before or those patients who had chest radiation before, those patients who had uh, significant uh, kyphoscoliosis and all these chest deformities of any kind. So those, those patients, we know that while these entities are not included in STS risk score, they are considered very high risk for surgery. So if you have a patient with severe AS who has got these features, then everything else becomes secondary. You know this patient cannot go for surgery at a low risk, and we should be favoring TAVR in those particular patients. Back to you, Prue.
yeah no uh, i i got attention when you told about uh, trying to make a decision looking at the lifetime of the patient and not that uh, particular event now this patient is 64 years of age who, who should still be considered as middle age even by definition anything more than 65 thankfully in indian patients are also longevity is increasing and even if you look at an average life expectancy is close to 70 at this point of time and uh, if this patient for the sake of discussion we can probably uh, think that he may have an expected um, life expectancy of 75 which is 10 years or if more so this patient who is 64 who is considered to be relatively young uh, based on the age criteria is there any cut off or uh, any number that you think yes he also has uh, other comorbidities which can uh, which makes the decision making <coughs> which come into picture in decision making but if we look at age criteria in isolation what do you think is the number uh that you consider surgery versus uh transcatheter if other variables are common between both uh what is the age group when you prefer taver and what is the age group where you prefer saver okay so you know i'll tell you the guidelines the american heart association uh last year it uh, revised its guidelines and there they uh, put in the age cutoff of 65 now that is for caucasian uh people or patients where what uh, us guidelines suggests is that if you have a patient with severe as with an age more than 65 then taver should be considered it doesn't say taver should be favored over surgery it says taver should be considered in age more than 65 if you have a age less than 65 then you should risk, uh, you should look at the risk algorithms or expected life expectancy and all those kind of things uh the european guidelines they kind of shook things a little bit this year when they released their guidelines after the american heart association guidelines were released and european guidelines put a cut off of 75 where they said that age less than 75 surgery should be preferred and age more than 75 taver should be preferred so they did not give a what do you call they did not give a room for discussion they pretty much said that any person age more than 75 we should favor taver in those patients and any person less than 75 we should favor surgery on those patients now these age cutoffs are based upon their patient profile their life expectancy their medical system and what not when we talk about in india we have to take it with a pinch of salt now while i do understand that overall india's national life expectancy is about 69 years uh what we have to understand is the kind of patient who come to us for severe as treatment considering taver they belong to that patient subset where you expect their life expectancy to be higher than national average so i can't take 69 as the expected life for the patient whom i'm considering for taver these patients they i expect them to live 75 or maybe even 80 even long, even beyond that uh so i wouldn't particularly take national uh national life expectancy in this person's in this uh, clinical context having said that let us think from the indian perspective you have a patient where uh you know you would think that if you take 80 as a cut off for uh, a reasonable life expectancy in a person who you are evaluating at age 60 65 because you know diseases they catch up 
there is a there is an index called Charleston Comorbidity Index. Uh, anybody can uh, uh, Google it. Basically, what it does is it looks at individual persons' comorbidities, any of them, CKD, lung dysfunction, uh, liver dysfunction, whatnot. And then it says that based upon the background comorbidities, you can kind of calculate that overall life expectancy at whatever given age. You can put an age of 60, you can put an age of 70, and it gives you a comorbidity index with which you would, you, it, it says that if you have these many comorbidities, uh, there won't be an ideal scenario where you will live for 20 years or 30 years. There will be other problems which will catch up with you. There could be intercurrent illness that will catch up with you. So. In India, if I have a person who is absolutely healthy at age 65, uh, I have no reason to believe why that person will not go beyond 80 years of age. Just because the national average is 69, that doesn't mean anything. The index case that we are talking about, imagine this is, let's say this patient did not have severe AS. If this patient had whatever other comorbidities we, talk, we talked about, this patient had an anterior wall MI, probably his anterior wall, at least part of it is dead because his ejection fraction was slightly lower even a couple of years back. Uh, this patient has uh, all the comorbidities. He has diabetes, he has hypertension, he has CKD with a creatinine of 1.9. Uh, if you just put these things into perspective, you cannot expect this patient to live for 20 years without any major problem. That is, I'm just talking about statistics. There will be patients who will outlive those. There will be patients who won't live as much. But these comorbidities are going to catch up with him. And on the top of it, he has got severe AS, which we know has got a poor uh, outcome if it is untreated. So if I have to put, I would say this patient probably has a life ex expectancy of around 15 years. If he outlives, maybe 20, uh, but that is stretching too much. Uh, I think that at this point of time, one bioprosthetic valve for him, be it surgical or be it TAVR, may be going edge to edge to his life expectancy based upon his comorbidities. That is, that will be my judgment uh, when I see a patient like like him running. Yeah, so because he's relatively young and if it's surgical risk, he's uh, considered to be acceptable, acceptable probably doing a surgical valve replacement with a bioprosthetic valve and in next 10 years is probably if he gets degenerated and then uh, we can consider doing a tower at this point of time when age increases and where tower will be preferred this is what if we took age as a criteria if i understand correctly but that alone should not be considered and other risk factors also need to be taken into consideration now moving for other risk factors if you look into this the lv dysfunction uh, this patient is having moderate LV dysfunction. The last that we know is two years back, his the LV function was reasonably okay, about 50%, which is quite acceptable. Now it has dropped to about 38%. Now, probably the only reason why we can explain is this uh, new entity, artic uh, stenosis, which has come into picture, and probably that is the cause for his LV dysfunction. And probably after replacing the valve, his LV function is most likely uh, going to improve, <clears throat> if not normal, close to normal. Now, uh, the two problems uh, of replacing the valve, like uh, when we do valve replacement, you are going to occlude the valve uh, by your transcatheter valve, be it a balloon expandable valve or a self-expandable valve, which to a certain extent, even for that brief moment, can uh, literally obstruct the flow, outflow 
from LV into IOTA. If the patient does not have significant LV reserve, then this LV dysfunction may probably uh, aggravate his condition and there could be a reason uh, for events on table. In the, if I understand it correctly, then do you think this patient will be better off uh, going for surgical valve replacement where patient is put into a bypass machine that LV can relax, you replace the valve and now the because the obstruction is relieved and his LV can better recover. Do you think by doing a transcatheter valve replacement in a patient who is having LV dysfunction, uh, does this uh, make a decision to uh, prefer surgery or a surgical valve replacement or a transcatheter valve? How does LV function uh, make a uh, come into picture in making a decision on this? So, you know, to answer this question, I can uh, take you back to the trials which were done with high surgical risk patients. And uh, one of the major determinant of uh, high surgical risk was low LV uh, ejection fraction. And we know that in patients with high surgical risk, TAVR fares better than surgery. So the, uh, the concern of uh, obstructing the outflow momentarily while you are deploying uh, the valve, that concern, I think, is out of place. Uh, all of the valves that we uh, deploy, uh, if we are doing a balloon expandable valve, then we typically pace the ventricle uh, so that uh, we effectively reduce the cardiac output. So there is, there, it's not that the LV is fighting against uh, an obstruction. And that pacing run is hardly for 30, 40 seconds. So it is too short for the LV to go stunned. And then there are valves these days which uh, do not require pacing at all. We have self-expandable valves where uh, the LV outflow obstruction does not occur at all. And in those patients, you can very safely replace a diseased valve with a, uh, with a normal functioning valve. Now, talking about surgery, you know, whenever we send patients for surgery who has got one index problem, like in this case, severus, or in chondriatal disease case, it could be chondriatal disease. When we send a person uh, for surgery with an index problem to be fixed, and if that, if that heart has got other concurrent problems, like LV dysfunction, like mitral regurgitation, tricuspid regurgitation, or uh, uh, pulmonary hypertension and whatnot, we know that the surgical outcomes are heavily dependent upon what happens to those other parameters once you fix the primary problem. Like, for example, if you have a patient with severe LV dysfunction or moderate LV dysfunction who has got severe coronary artery disease, when this patient goes for CABG, then what surgeon knows for sure is that once you revascularize those arteries, this LV over the next 24 to 48 hours is going to improve and that will help the surgeon recover this patient faster. That is why surgeons hesitate to take patients of ischemic heart disease who has got a demonstrably dead myocardium to surgery because they know that even after surgery, the chances of LV recovering in the short term is less. And because of that, it will be difficult for the surgeon to get the patient out of the ICU, forget uh, out of the ICU, even out of uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. Now, in this particular case, you have got a patient who has got some LV dysfunction. Uh, we can assume that part of it is old ischemia, whether part of it is because of new ischemia related to circumflex, that we don't know yet. At least he doesn't have any angelal symptoms in the history. And part of it is because of severe AS, and that is also irreversible or reversible. That part is also not very clear. And at this point, we know that we really don't have good tools 
to identify whether the LV is going to recover or not. So you have a patient with an ejection fraction of 35 to 40%. Some part of it most likely is dead. Some part of it could be salvageable. And then you have a mitral regurgitation, which by itself does not meet the criteria of replacement. But once a surgeon goes in, then the chances of the surgeon uh, getting this patient out of ICU will depend upon how good the LV is functioning, how good the other valves are functioning. So many of the times, a 3 plus MR surgeon is forced to repair by a ring or do a replacement because uh, leaking a 3 plus MR in post-op day zero or post-op day one is going to be very difficult for that surgeon to get out of uh, uh, that initial recovery period. So in these patients where you don't, you not only have an index problem, but you have other associated uh, problems with the heart, unless they magically recover immediately post-surgery, the first one to two days or maybe three days, you can expect it to be stormy after, uh, after a thoracotomy, after an open heart surgery, vis-a-vis travel, which has got a very transient 30 to 40 second, uh, what you call penalty to the myocardium, which most of the time the heart tolerates quite well. So in these scenarios, I would much more favor TAVR over surgery, understanding that TAVR is going to be safer both uh, physiologically and also data-wise. Surgery is, is challenging. Uh, in fact, a uh, lot of these surgical cases, they have to put mechanical support for at least first 24 to 48 hours till the myocardium recovers either because of the afterload reduction or because of revascularization or because of MR reduction or whatnot, sometimes myocardium takes a day or two. And during that time, you have to give mechanical support either in the form of IABP or in the form of an external uh, pump. Uh, sometimes we put Empela uh, in those cases. Sometimes you can put ECMO in those cases or um, a portable, uh, what you call cardiopulmonary bypass, you, you put them. Uh, just so that uh, the myocardium recovers or takes time uh, to, to recover out of it. So in these kind of scenarios, Praneet, uh, definitely TAVR would fare over uh, surgery. I'll give you one exception. You have a patient who has a demonstrable normal LV a year or two ago, now developed severe AS and has got LV dysfunction. There is no other concomitant pathology. In those patients, you expect the left ventricle to improve uh, very soon after the aortic valve is replaced. So those patients sending for surgery is less of a problem than these kinds of patients who have got myocardial disease both ways, both ischemia as well as uh, uh, valve, and also has a concomitant, another valve pathology, which by itself does not need uh, replacement. But once you go in, surgeon may have to do something. Otherwise, it will be difficult for that surgeon to get out of the uh, cardiopulmonary bypass. Okay, when uh, the other aspect which you were uh, telling is about uh, the mitral regurgitation. This patient has moderate mitral regurgitation, which was a concern for um, Dr. Sadik as well. Now, ideally, when a patient has two valve lesions, um, one of them is severe and one of them is moderate, and surgery becomes the treatment of choice where uh, you address both the valves. Now, this patient has severe aortic stenosis, which is an indication for sternotomy. And because patient had underwent sternotomy, 
you also address the mitral regurgitation though it is not severe but it is going to become severe in the future so you do not want to subject subject the patient for a redo sternotomy you address that other moderately severe uh, valve lesion as well so because this patient has severe as and moderate mr surgery should be the preferred treatment of choice uh, to do that uh, sadik uh, said that his mitral regurgitation could be probably because of coronary artery disease and aortic stenosis uh, what are your thoughts on it a moderate mitral regurgitation do we need to really worry do we need to evaluate is it going to progress or is it going to regress or is it going to stay the same and um, how does it um, play a role in making a decision of uh, surgical valve replacement versus tavr so you know this particular patient it is highly unlikely for this patient to go for surgery and only come out of avr this patient will most likely require an avr a single vessel bypass to his um, uh, circumflex and most likely a mitral valve repair possibly replacement uh, repair in the form of ring repair so this patient is not going to have isolated saver it will be a saver plus a mitral valve repair with a ring plus a single vessel uh, bypass what we have not established yet is what is the etiology of this mr and you know while i'm saying we have not established yet it may not be that easy also for us to pinpoint exactly where the mr is coming from a part of it is ischemic because uh, circumflex has got a lesion but most of it if i have to make a guess is probably secondary to the annular dilatation probably secondary to the left ventricular dilatation because of poor ejection fraction and what not we do know that severe as patient they tend to have a higher lv diastolic pressures and that also drives the mitral re, uh, regurgitation every time when um, the the ventricle contracts during systole so we what we have seen in the data set is if mitral valve does not have intrinsic pathology that is if it does not have any organic disease you don't have a tethered leaflet you don't have a mitral valve prolapse you don't have a caudal rupture you don't have those kind of things unless the mitral valve has a structural valve uh, structural damage most of the scenarios after tavr you see one to two point reduction in mitral regurgitation which is if you start with a 3 plus mr you would expect the mr to come down to 2 plus or 1 plus and we are okay leaving mr at 3 or 4 plus even during tavr because we are not putting a patient on cardiopulmonary bypass we are not putting the patient uh, on a for a thoracotomy surgeon does not have that luxury to leave because he will have difficult time getting the patient out of the bypass machine and uh, out of the cardiothoracic icu so in this particular patient you would give him a benefit of doubt you have to revascularize that circumflex if you go percutaneous you do with a pci if you do surgical you have to do a bypass and if you are going percutaneous you can do a tavr and with that what you have done is you have taken care of myocardium from both the sides both from the aortic valve side also from the uh, ischemia side and with that you you would expect this mr to improve i would definitely do a te on this patient to make sure there is no major structural valve abnormality which if present then tavr is unlikely to uh, make this mr better and in that case you can argue whether surgical surgery may be a better idea by doing a double valve replacement when you do that 
you also have to take that surgical risk into account because now when you are doing a saver plus a mitral valve replacement plus a single vessel bypass, you are doing your thing. You're talking about a pump time of somewhere around three hours, three and a half hours, maybe even four hours. And we know that as the pump time increases beyond two hours, it adds to uh, the cardiac risk, it adds to the overall mortality quite a lot. So those are the parameters that you do need to think. Uh, in this case, if you go percutaneous, you do uh, revascularization to circumflex, you do tower to the aortic stenosis, and there is overwhelming chance that the mitral regurgitation is going to get better if there is no structural abnormality present. Uh, Sadiq, uh, do you have anything to add or uh, have any comment? Yeah, sir. Uh, actually, yeah. So for me, uh, the whole, you know, the decision to go for a tower over a surgical valve is probably the same reason that, you know, once you do end up opening up the patient, you don't really have the luxury of doing a single valve and coming out. And I feel that in the presence of moderate MR, we are actually overestimating the LV function. It's likely to be much worse than... Uh, it's likely to be much worse than what uh, we have uh, detected at 30% because now the LV is decompressing into the LA, which is because of the incompetent mitral valve. So once uh, we really don't know how severe the LV function actually is. And I feel that once you do reduce the, I mean, relieve the LVOT obstruction and the LVEDP drops, it's very, very likely that the MR will regress and of course yeah we do take care of the ischemic component also by revascularizing the cirque so i feel that will help if this was a patient with a good lv function i would probably lean a little more towards a surgical repair but uh, in the presence of a moderate lv dysfunction with moderate mr i think uh, surgery would not probably be the first option i would like to go for a transcutaneous uh, replacement rather than sending the patient for an open surgery Yeah, uh, point taken, uh, Sadiq. Uh, agree with uh, what you said. Now you you the you mentioned about um, coronary artery disease. Now again, this is something which is uh, equally uh, bothering, uh, particularly with the mitral regurgitation and uh, the drop in uh, ejection fraction. Now we don't know yes. which is contributing to the drop in his ejection fraction, be it aortic stenosis or. Uh, beat coronary artery disease and circumflex uh, we know supplies the postrolateral wall which can lead yes. to uh, papillary muscle dysfunction which can produce a mitral oh, wow. regurgitation now if this coronary artery disease which is uh, uh, the circumflex artery is significant now we don't know about uh, how significant it is we probably have to do some investigation but it is anatomically <laughs> it looks severe enough. How do we address that? And in relation to aortic stenosis, now when a patient who has an aortic stenosis and coronary artery disease, should we address both or should we stage it? And if we have to stage it, which should come first? Coronary artery disease treatment first or valve disease or valve disease first or, um, or uh, uh, CAD first? How do we make a decision? How do we evaluate presence of uh, coronary artery disease in relation to severe aortic stenosis. Anup, uh, would you like to answer? Yeah, yeah Pranit. So, you know, the data that we had in the recent years that makes it very clear that uh, doing PCI to 
uh, residual chondria artery, arteries, which is asymptomatic, versus leaving it alone in the short term, do not have any penalty. So I want you to I, I want to emphasize each of these terms very carefully. The coronary artery disease needs to be asymptomatic. That is number one, which, as we discussed in this case, is at times very difficult to prove either for or against. But an asymptomatic coronary artery disease, uh, whether you do a PCI or whether you leave it alone, in the short term, and I think we have the data for up to two years, do not have any penalty to pay. What happens after two years, we don't know. Uh, but definitely up to two years, the data supports that you can leave it alone. What we end up doing in our clinical practice is that if you have a lesion which historically has been associated with uh, higher mortality, which is your left main stenosis, your proxality stenosis, or your triple vasectomies. These are the three entities which we know, even if asymptomatic, they are associated with uh, higher uh, mortality. In those patient subset, we tend to do angioplasty, even if asymptomatic, before we do TAVR. You can do both the procedures on the same sitting, or you can do PCI first, and then you do TAVR. We typically don't do TAVR first and then do PCI because Doing PCI after TAVR becomes a little challenging because now you have a valve frame sitting uh, on the way. So typically we do PCI first and then we do TAVR. So only two situations where PCI can be uh, suggested by expert consensus. One is if there is obvious reason to believe that this coronary artery disease is causing symptoms, either in the form of angina or in this particular case where, where we are implicating that it could be causing ischemic heart disease uh, plus minus mitral regurgitation. So in this kind of subset, uh, you are validated to do PCI, which should be done either before TAVR or as a combo procedure with the TAVR. The second situation, which question is not yet answered, and that is uh, high-risk anatomy for um, uh, artery disease. That is your proxality, left main, or triple vessel disease. In those situations, we normally do angioplasty, even in asymptomatic cases. Even in TAVR, we would do that. So a mid-LED asymptomatic or a mid-RCA asymptomatic, or even for that matter, SERP asymptomatic, at this point of time, based upon the data, you can leave it, you'll most likely be okay. Uh, again, as, again, you have to recollect that this is only a short-term data. Long-term, how, how do they do? We don't know that much. Uh, so a little bit of clinical decision-making uh, at, at a personalized level also has to take into play. Uh, guidelines uh, do not uh, give us a very clear idea in this particular in this particular subset. Yeah, so doing intervention in this case. So in case if we we thought that coronary artery disease is significant and the patient needs a percutaneous coronary intervention and a valve replacement by TAVR, which uh, can be done. Now the problem uh, for doing a percutaneous intervention for every interventional cardiologist is the uh, functioning of the kidney because we will be injecting contrast and essentially that contrast will be ejected out of kidney and you want the uh, functionality of kidney to be intact. This patient who has a creatinine of 1.9, uh, stable chronic kidney disease stage 3 if we have to say. Now the risk of contrast <clears throat> injury or contrast uh, associated nephropathy in case patient goes for hammer. Equally, the problem of ischemia when the patient goes for surgical valve replacement. 
because you do cross clamping of aorta there is ischemia to kidneys which can equally lead to kidney damage so either way there is a risk of uh, kidneys getting affected either of the uh, treatment modalities now out of the two devils that are there which can which one can uh, hurt his kidneys more or how do we make a decision in in relation to kidney safety because nephrologist would be unhappy when we uh, test his kidneys so uh, which of these are higher risk of producing kidney damage and how do we make a decision of saver versus taver when it comes to chronic kidney disease okay so you know when we were talking about high surgical risk uh, for sts the one of the prime determinant other than age was uh, lv dysfunction the other one was ckd we know that surgeons don't like ckd surgeons want the kidneys to be functioning very well uh, ckd is one of the major determinant of what the outcome is going to be post surgery we do know that there is a, a temporary deterioration of uh, uh, the gfr and eventually either it will recover or it may even get better what we also know in severe as patient is that these patients have this chronic cardiorenal syndrome where uh their creatinine because of their hypoperfused state uh they typically tend to uh function less there was a recent uh, large data which was published which uh, proved this point that uh, uh 89% of patients with ckd who underwent taver uh had an improvement in their uh, kidney function which is which is remarkable basically what that tells is if you take 100 patients with ckd and you subject them to taver with all the contrast load in everything probably because of improved uh, cardiac output because of improved renal function uh, overall improved mechanics of the body uh, the majority of them almost 90% of the day 9 out of 10 10 patients you would expect their creatinine to improve uh, this is this is contrary to what you see in the surgical outcome and in fact uh, Uh, amongst uh, the various morbidities which where taver outshine surgery other than atrial fibrillation uh, aki is one of them where the chances of uh, kidney deterioration is much lower with taver as compared to surgery granted that when you give contrast then uh, you are actually torturing the kidneys what i tell patients is if you are doing a contrast procedure then try not to delay your taver after that try to combine lot of things together so that a uh, increased cardiac output gives your kidneys the best chance to recover so if this particular patient if i have to plan the procedure i would plan uh, ct followed by because ct taver protocol is a mandatory thing in all of these patients ct followed by uh, angioplasty and taver i'll try to plan it back to back because uh, i want to give this kidney the best cardiac output possible as soon as possible so that it has the best chance to recover the worst thing that we do is we do a ct scan on a patient who has ckd uh, we subject them to contrast exposure and then don't do taver for 2 3 months now basically you have caused an insult to the kidney and has not benefited in any form that is that is probably not the best idea uh but uh, most of these patients and we have seen uh, at least a few of our patients who were on established dialysis before taver and after taver uh, their uh, not only dialysis got stopped their creatinine actually got much better not normal but they got much better and they are free of dialysis um, after taver so chronic kidney disease 
uh, hugely favors Tavr in, in whatever form you look at it. Okay, uh, considering everything, like if we look at this uh, patient uh, holistically, uh, all the factors taken into consideration, Tavr seems to be a preferred uh, treatment option uh, for him in comparison to Tavr. So now that the patient uh, is okay to do Tavr, we need to discuss uh, Tavr. We need to discuss about the practical aspects of uh, getting the Tavr done. Now this patient who is a CGHS uh, uh, employee who got uh, recently retired. Uh, he stays uh, about 100 kilometers um, away from the main part of the city. And uh, now the most important thing whenever we talk about tower is the cost. <clears throat> from one, uh, from the surgical aspect of it, when we do surgery, we want patient to be uh, in close proximity at least uh, within the first one month because we want patient to be, um, we want to ensure that his uh, post-operative uh, course is uh, smooth. The wounds are healing fine and he's not having any immediate outcomes for which his uh, stay outside the city will be cumbersome. But we encourage patients to probably uh, take a lodge or something and stay close or maybe hire a place in the relatives. So that part is manageable for him. Now, the most important part is the cost. For a CGHS beneficiary in Hyderabad at least, uh, the surgical valve replacement is free of cost, so he need not uh, spend any money. Tower otherwise is going to be expensive. It is at least uh, 15 lakhs or more. Uh, so this is uh, zero cost versus 15 lakhs of cost. Now, how do you justify or the so-called risk that this patient has to take to undergo a zero cost surgical valve replacement versus a less risky uh, treatment which is uh, a bit of a significant expense, even in today's standard. How do you uh, convince this patient or how do you uh, bring this discussion or how do you talk to this patient about uh, treatment option? So, so there is no discussion of tower complete without talking about cost. There is no doubts about it. The cost still remains uh, very high. And in this kind of patient subset where you know one therapy is more or less free and the other therapy uh, costs an arm and a length, uh, it is a relevant discussion. Whenever we talk about cost, there are two, three aspects that I want to highlight. Number one, the cost of therapy as a general, which somebody pays, not necessarily a patient, but somebody pays, and an out-of-pocket expenditure. So in this particular patient, I am almost certain that cost of therapy of surgery will be higher than tower in the first year. If you take the total cost in one year, the surgical cost is going to exceed tower, uh, both by the surgical uh, charges uh, and also post-surgery follow-up, some certain complications, whatnot, and all of this. So each of these is going to add uh, the days of uh, the days lost in recovery and whatnot. So overall, in one year, the tower cost will pay for itself. The, the problem is, while this is a system cost, uh, every single cost that I mentioned will not be a patient's out-of-pocket cost. The out-of-pocket cost, which what we see for this patient is remarkably different when you go for surgery versus like for this patient, if he goes for surgery, and let us say in one year, he has one or two readmission for either a sternal wound infection or maybe some heart failure or whatnot, 
these are all zero cost for him. Somebody is paying, but for him, it's a zero cost. So the overall cost of therapy will be high for surgery, but the out-of-pocket expense will be much lower for this particular patient. So what he has to look into, and that is again part of the counseling is, uh, what is overall financial status for this particular patient? If this patient does not mind uh, going through surgery with its, with its comorbidity, taking some higher risk of mortality, the surgical mortality, uh, and uh, uh, you know, going through a long recovery process may be requiring uh, more hospital assistance, but all of that without much cost to him versus getting a procedure which is low risk, which has got lower morbidity, but it will add an upfront cost to him. That is something which becomes a personal decision. We can help them make that decision, but unfortunately, we should not be making decision for them. We can put all the perspectives into uh, in, in front of him and let that person uh, take a call in terms of uh, which is better uh, for that particular patient. Yeah, no, I think uh, these are all the uh, questions uh, that I had in relation to this patient. Like, this is how uh, I look at each and every component. How much is it going to uh, make a difference? So I'll uh, probably pause here for a minute. Uh, take comments uh, from others. If uh, I think the forum is open for discussion. If anybody has any questions to me or Anup or any other questions or points that we which we might have missed. Uh, please bring it up uh, and we can discuss it. And uh, while you are gathering your thoughts, maybe I invite uh, Dr. Somraj sir for uh, his comments. So sir, uh, your comments, uh, how much you agree or disagree and if there's anything that we have missed or you want to um, make any corrections, please uh, share your comments. Thank you. Pranish and uh, Anup, uh, it's uh, very, uh, very nice that you decided to bring in this issue. Uh, I just wanted to uh, make a comment on the number of people attending this session is very disappointing, but they can't take shelter under saying that it is a cardiology topic. And uh, it is a, a primary practitioner, a physician, and any other specialties, whoever they are practicing, they face this problem and they are not attending, is part of the serious problem of medicine. And uh, we have serious issues related to our attitudes and our education. And uh, this is continuously disappointing for me. And uh, I can't tell you more, I can't tell you less. They're extremely disappointing. They have to make these decisions in, also apart from cardiologists and uh, uh, don't give <coughs> credit to them and don't excuse them for not attending because it's a cardiology topic. I don't agree with it. Having said that, that is a, the serious issue with medicine is that. Having said that, I only, uh, most of the issues that you already discussed is a wonderful discussion. And I learned uh, a few things uh, from your discussion. But I just wanted to point out our issues mitral regurgitation, the setting of uh, aortic stenosis. The aortic wall is obviously pathologic, as organic disease is a different issue. 
If the mitral regurgitation is not organic, the mitral regurgitation is related to uh, aortic stenosis, salivary dilatation, nalar dilatation, left atrial uh, dilatation, the issues are different. I, in this patient you are talking about, I just want to know, what is the LV systolic pressure? Uh, sir, it was 110 millimeters on the plate. What is gradient? Gradient 84 by 54, sir. When it is 84 by 54, what is the aortic pressure? Sorry, sir? What is the aortic pressure? Aortic pressure, so the uh, aortic uh, systolic pressure is 110, sir. And oh. the gradient is, uh, mean gradient is 54, sir. No, well, LV systolic pressure, I'm asking. L LV systolic oh. pressure will be 110 plus uh, 80, which will be about 190 millimeters of mercury, sir. So, it's 190 millimeters of mercury, LV systolic pressure, LV dilated, annulus dilated is a different issue than uh, LV not dilated. LV function is otherwise normal. And then in this situation, the data amongst uh, uh, various wall diseases were the estimate, whether aortic stenosis, mitral stenosis, or aortic regurgitation. Mitral regurgitation is the most difficult region to evaluate as to the severity and issues related. Don't jump to conclusions as to uh, what should be done to mitral regurgitation with the existing information and data. You have to individualize. Go by LV systolic pressure, go by annular dilatation, go by, uh, say, left atrial uh, uh, size, and then make the decision. Don't rush to make decisions on mitral wall in these patients and decisions uh, on aortic wall in these patients uh, blindly with the existing so-called uh, guidelines. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, Shankar, sir, I would like to hear from you. Uh, most of the aortic stenosis patients are seen or first diagnosed by uh, the physician, and whenever a diagnosis, or sorry, a treatment decision is being made, uh, the patients do take their primary physician's opinion uh, with um, a lot of respect. So. Uh, the whole point of discussion was to understand and uh, we wanted to uh, kind of know how we think and what is the discussion that happens. So when every case of uh, aortic stenosis has come, this is how we discuss um, in each and every aspect. So we wanted to bring in this discussion. So I would like to listen from you. Uh, how would uh, you see this patient? How would you make a decision and anything do you think that... Uh, we need to include or we have missed. Shankar, sir. You are Good evening to all. Uh, this is a very uh, interesting case uh, where uh, uh, a multidisciplinary uh, heart valve team should be involved in this case to decide whether it is a saver or taver in this case. So because of uh, high or prohibitive surgical risk in this case, in the form of uh, many comorbidities, uh, hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease uh, and uh, coronary artery disease, uh, post-CABG <clears throat> and the age is also 64 years, is not that uh, young. Uh, so, uh, looking at this uh, STS prome, that is Society for the Thoracic Surgeons uh, uh, predicting the risk of mortality 
uh, here it comes to be i think it may be more than 8 uh, in the fragility score it is mentioned here it is 0 by 4 but i don't think 0 is is a robust health because of with this uh, lot of comorbidities and uh, uh, post cbg and uh, lcx lesion and uh, moderate mr and with uh, moderate lv dysfunction i don't think uh, the fragility score measure uh, it may be more than 2 or more than 3 so here organ system dysfunction is also there in the form of uh, renal uh, chronic kidney disease uh, more 3 by 3b uh, egfr here it is uh, 39 ml per minute so uh, looking at these all these things and is uh, even in spite of all these comorbidities is life expectancy is accepted with the quality of life it will be more than one year so uh, taking into criteria of patients preferences and values and a heart valve team disciplinary uh, assessment and assessing the valve and vascular anatomy if it is suitable then i go for only uh, tavr i uh, uh, tavr only so uh, second is uh, he has got a lcx lesion so um, this uh, can be tackled by pci so once some, some, some prefer concomitant uh, some may prefer only staged uh, procedure so i uh, i is a general physician only with little knowledge in uh, uh, in this field so i go for pci uh, first then we go for tavi uh, so regarding this uh, in the presence of uh, ischemic cardiomyopathy presence of uh, mr so the mr has to be tackled uh, so the edge to edge repair with the transcatheter so first uh, stage procedure first uh, i prefer uh, pci to the lcx lesion then second we go for uh, uh, tavr uh, or tavi then uh, along with that uh, a TVMR, that is a transcatheter uh, mitral valve repair, edge to edge repair, and then one sitting. Uh, this, uh, after a layer, listening to the uh, whole discussion, uh, I think, uh, can we think of uh, in these lines, which is a stage procedure, first LCX, uh, attending the LCX with the PCI, then go for TAVI or TAVR, uh, then TVMR for the mitral valve repair. Uh, so this is my opinion, uh, having gone through the learned discussion with the taverologist uh, and the senior most uh, cardiologist teacher, Dr. Somarazu, sir. Dr. Pranit, uh, Dr. Shankar, uh, uh, I just wanted to add something here. As to the coronary artery disease, uh, the lesions, what should be done in a patient like this? <coughs> if the lesion is straightforward, above 75-80% or more, uh, the issues are not uh, uh, much. But when the lesions are borderline, around 70% or around 65-70%, these borderline lesions, mind you, <coughs> you are dealing with the LV systolic pressure of uh, so high, 
healthy antioxidant levels are so likely to be high with mitral irritation and renal failure and aortic diastolic levels are so low even with borderline lesions they become ischemic once aortic valve is taken care of these lesions which are borderline may not be of significance they don't have angina they do better and then don't rush to deal with these lesions which are borderline at this point of time they are 75 80% or more it's a different issue i agree with you on that issue thank you thank you sir thank you. thank you sir point well taken sir uh, so we we also thought the same so we thought the coronary artery disease uh, though it looked anatomically significant we thought it were it may be uh, okay uh, to manage medically and uh, as sir pointed out once uh, aortic stenosis is relieved uh, the coronary artery disease or ischemia will be much better uh, regarding mitral regurgitation also we thought that it was because the patient did not have any significant structural abnormality we thought uh, the mr was secondary and uh, we hope that the mitral regurgitation will at least stay same or maybe get better the same has been communicated to the patient and the coronary artery disease was also uh, the issue of coronary artery disease was also uh, brought into the discussion the risk of contrast nephropathy was also highlighted and uh, the overall longevity and the cost was discussed in detail to the patient and a uh, uh, proposal of transcatheter valve replacement uh, was given to the patient uh, regarding finances patient had two sons who were working in us and uh, because uh, and he would get some aid from his two sons he agreed to get uh, tavadin so finally this patient with all the discussion the decision is to do a transcatheter valve replacement of for the aortic stenosis and medical management for the uh, coronary artery disease and uh, close watch for the mitral regurgitation maybe 6 to 8 weeks after transcatheter valve replacement uh, so this is what Uh, was done for this patient uh, it's 911 uh, is there any uh, comments uh, i would be happy to take uh, we'll probably wait for a few seconds uh, and in the meantime anup you can uh, give us the closing remarks and then we can end the session so uh, we included uh, tavr as a part of our discussion because uh, when we took uh, feedback about uh, adult sessions one of the feedback we got was uh, that we should probably include more sub specialty topic as uh, you all recollect that uh, in the first 119 118 sessions we were mostly trying to restrict ourselves uh, for topics which are of general importance to all of us regardless of our specialty so uh, discussing about tavr was one of our attempts uh, i of course am biased because i am a tavr operator and uh, i i very fondly remember our times with somaraju sir at care where we started this whole program and all the ups and downs uh, uh, in 2017 and 18 where we were trying to establish uh, uh, tavr at care and also at hyderabad where uh, tavr uh, was very less known so i of course have a conflict of interest and uh, on purpose i was trying to avoid the discussion of tavr uh, on the weekly huddle but now we did it and uh, this is no more a unicorn i think tavr is being done in pretty much uh, uh, most of the 
larger centers now. Uh, some centers do less volume, some more, but as a general tower is now ubiquitous, now every cardiologist knows about it. And uh, there are patients who come in after learning about it and the demand to get tower as compared to surgery because of its uh, minimal invasive. So as what Samarajusar was saying, this is not a topic which is restricted to cardiologists, uh, physicians, and all other subspecialist doctors, because there may be their friends or family who would be taking their opinion about whether they should go for tower or surgery, while they may not be able to give the nitty gritties of it, at least uh, having a little bit of idea would definitely uh, enable them to help uh, their friends and family make a decision. So we thought it was a, re a relevant topic. And uh, for us, uh, it's uh, it's our uh, conflict of interest, which I'm disclosing. Uh, but overall, I think I had fun at least discussing uh, my thoughts uh, in this in this session. Yeah, thank you, Anup. Uh, weekly huddle is hosted every Wednesday. We change our time, uh, 8 to 9 p.m. Uh, we will see you again uh, next week with a new topic. Uh, please do join. Uh, thank you for attending. Have a good night. Thank you, everyone.